first, let's start out with Mr. Biden and his new video so you can form your opinion. And I'm sure, unless you've been in a hole, that you're up to date on what happened with Biden. Lucy Flores, a former assemblywoman of Nevada, came forward and said that she was inappropriately touched by Biden in 2014. And then a woman from Connecticut came forward saying she was inappropriately touched. And then yesterday, two additional women came forward saying they were also inappropriately touched. So this is Biden's response since the floodgates are now open and more and more women are coming forward. And honestly, I would not be surprised one single bit if even more women came forward. Biden says, social norms are changing. I understand that. And I've heard what these women are saying. Politics to me has always been about making connections, but I will be more mindful about respecting personal space in the future. That's my responsibility and I will meet it. So politics is about making connections. Okay, sure. But that doesn't mean leaning forward from behind and giving someone a big wet sloppy kiss on their head and sniffing their hair and grabbing them and hugging them far too long and all the other things that he's been accused of. So it's a good thing that his team made him come forward with this message about respecting personal space, but I don't know that, you know, is it possible even that he didn't know that this was inappropriate? It seems like he must have some kind of social disorder if he thinks what he has done is appropriate, which is also concerning uh, for the President of the United States. Folks, in the coming month, I expect to be talking to you about a whole lot of issues, and I'll always be direct with you, but today I want to talk about gestures of support and encouragement that I've made to women and some men and made them uncomfortable. And I always try to be, uh, in my career, I've always tried to make a human connection. That's my responsibility, I think. I shake hands, I hug people, I, I grab men and women by the shoulders and say, you can do this. And, and, uh, and whether they're women, men, young, old, it's, it's the way I've always been. It's the way I've tried to show I care about them and I'm listening. And over the years, knowing what I've been through, the things that I've faced, I've found that scores, if not hundreds of people have come up to me and reached out for solace and comfort, something, something, anything that may help them get through the tragedy they're going through. And, and, uh, and, and so I, it's just, just who I am. And I've never thought of politics as cold and antiseptic. I, I've always thought it about connecting with people. As I said, shaking hands, uh, hands on the shoulder, a hug, uh, encouragement. And now, and now it's all about taking selfies together. Uh, you know, social norms have begun to change. They've shifted. And the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. And I get it. I get it. I hear what they're saying. I understand it. And I'll be much more mindful. That's my responsibility. My responsibility, and I'll meet it. But I'll always believe governing, quite frankly, life for that matter, is about connecting, about connecting with people. That won't change. But I will be more mindful and respectful of people's personal space. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I've worked my whole life to empower women. I've worked my whole life to prevent abuse. I've written, and, and so the idea that I can adjust to the fact that personal space is important, more important than it's ever been, is, is, is just not thinkable. I will. I will. Okay, so that's been Joe Biden. And 
his video is interesting. It's interesting because it plays off of the fact, and other people have said this, I believe Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi said something similar to this, it plays off the fact that some people like to get away with certain things by saying, oh, that's just how it was in the old days, today is different. Yeah, that might be true to a certain extent, but it was never okay to kiss women without their permission, to sniff people's hair, to kiss and sniff children without permission. Um, there's a lot going on here, and it can't all be handed off to the fact that he's been around for a long time, he's been a politician for a long time, and things were just different back then. That's not how it works. I, I understand him saying that it's a different era, it's the selfie era, people expect more personal space. Those things might well be true. But it's also true that he did wrong. And so in his video, I don't really see him acknowledging that he did wrong. He's saying he's listening, but he's not admitting to being at fault. He's not saying, look, I never had any ill intentions. I am so sorry that I made these women uncomfortable. And going forward, I will be extremely respectful of individuals' personal space. That's what he should have done. And I want to remind you, if you all have already seen it, um, and I want to inform you, if you haven't seen it, of the two additional women who have come forward since Lucy Flores and the woman from Connecticut. So this is a refresher of what I reported last night. Biden has been accused by Lucy Flores of inappropriate touching and kissing. And a second Connecticut woman came forward and also accused him of inappropriate touching. And now in this article, we have two more. And just to backtrack a little bit, if you're not familiar with Lucy Flores, she is a former assemblywoman from Nevada. Ms. Caruso, now 22, said she chalked up the encounter at the time to how men act and did not say anything publicly. But she said it was particularly uncomfortable because she had just shared her own story of sexual assault and had expected Mr. Biden, an architect of the 1994 Violence Against Women Act, to understand the importance of physical boundaries. It didn't, doesn't even really cross your mind that such a person would dare perpetuate harm like that, she said. These are supposed to be people you can trust. And then we have DJ Hill, 59 a writer who recalled meeting Mr. Biden in 2012 at a fundraising event in Minneapolis, said that when she and her husband, Robert, stepped up to take their photograph with the vice president, he put his hand on her shoulder and then started dropping it down her back, which made her feel very uncomfortable. Her husband, seeing the movement, put his hand on Mr. Biden's shoulder and inter interrupted with a joke. Ms. Hill did not say anything at the time and acknowledged that she does not know what Mr. Biden's intention was or whether he was aware of her discomfort. Only he knows his intent, she said, but norms are changing now, she said, and if something makes you feel uncomfortable, you have to feel able to say it. Okay, so that's part of what I reported on yesterday, and you can see that it's it's disturbing, particularly the part about him putting his hand on a woman's thigh. I, in particular, wouldn't like that. That feels more overtly sexual. I mean, a thigh is 
obviously, <laughs> you know, it's reserved for someone you're dating or married to, let's say that. So I don't know what people are going to make of Joe Biden. People are already making excuses for him from establishment Democrats to people just on Twitter who are fans of establishment Democrats. So now that he's come out with a, an apology, they'll probably be even more Team Biden. So I don't know where this is going to go. I definitely think more women are going to come forward. As for how it's going to hurt Biden or if it's going to hurt Biden, I don't know that it is. Uh, we'll have to see. But I feel like his announcement for um, running for president is imminent, and so we'll just have to stay tuned. So if you haven't seen it yet, I'm going to go over the original article because you will be so mad. Every time I think about this, and when Jordan suggested that I do this as a story or as, as part of today's stream, I like immediately my blood boiled because <laughs> this piece is just so infuriating that anyone could even anti-Bernie people, that anyone could do an article like this, write an opinion piece like this, is beyond me. It makes no sense. On no planet is Bernie Sanders at all like Donald Trump. And that's the premise of this crazy, crazy article. So let's get into that before my head explodes. So this is in the Washington Post, which, by the way, is owned by Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos just to mention, is not super duper happy with Bernie because Bernie has been shining a light on the tax dodging of Amazon, the general corruptness of Amazon, the uh, oligarchiness of Amazon. Yes, I just made up a word, um, but it shall stand. So um, yeah, it's a paper owned by Jeff Bezos and this particular article is written by Dana Milbank, who, by the way, his wife is currently working for the Hinkenlooper campaign. And I hopefully I've said that right, but honestly, he's not he's not really a thing. So he's not going to win the presidency. So let's just let's just say it it's Hinkenlooper. Uh, and also, as Jordan uncovered, and you can see that on his Twitter, um, Dana Milbank's wife has also done some polling for opposing um, people, opposing presidential candidates. And who do I mean by that? Again, Mr. Joe Biden. The connections here are crazy. So Dana Milbank's wife has previously done some polling for Joe Biden's foundation and uh, make of that what you will. So the title of this article is called Bernie Sanders has emerged as the Donald Trump of the left. Again, head is exploding. In politics as in physics, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Hence, Senator Bernie Sanders emergence as the Donald Trump of the left. Fundraising and polls show that many Democrats think the best answer to an angry old white guy with crazy hair, New York accent, and flair for demagoguery what a lunatic this guy is. As well, another angry old white guy with crazy hair, New York accent, and flair for demagoguery. This guy, this guy, I can't handle him. It's not difficult to picture a scenario in which Bernie captures the Democratic presidential nomination with the same formula that worked for Trump with Republicans in 2016. 
I mean, already you can tell this piece is nutso. On paper, the Independent from Vermont doesn't make sense. Democrats are a party of youth, and he's 77. They are majority female, and he's a man. They represent the emerging multicultural America, and he is white. Statistically, he is the worst option against Trump. And that's not true at all. That's lying with statistics. An NBC News poll this week found that there are more voters with concerns about Sanders, 58%, than there are for former Vice President Joe Biden, 48%, Senator Elizabeth Warren, 53%, and Senator Kamala Harris or former Representative Beto O'Rourke, 41% each. Yet, Sanders has both money and movement. His campaign on Tuesday announced a haul of $18.2 million in the first quarter from 525,000 individual contributors. The other major populist, early favorite Warren, has floundered in both money and popularity. And undeclared frontrunner Biden now looks vulnerable to accusations he inappropriately touched women, kicked off by a prominent Sanders 2016 backer who served on the board of the Sanders political group. Others have already tried this, uh, saying that Lucy Flores, because she supported Bernie Sanders in 2016, must have a conflict of interest and must be doing this. By doing this, I mean coming forward about Biden inappropriately touching her in order to serve Bernie Sanders, which is not the case. She recently attended a Beto O'Rourke rally, and she has not announced who she supports for 2020. So this is just Dana Milbank trying to get yet another nudge in. Meanwhile, Sanders himself remains untouchable in a Trumpian way. Claims of mistreatment by male staffers from women who worked in his 2016 campaign? Yawn. His resistance to releasing his tax returns? Whatever. The idea that Democrats need a unifying figure to lure disaffected Trump voters in key states? Never mind. Sanders isn't Trump in the race-baiting, lender-cheating, fact-avoiding, porn actress-paying, Putin Putin-loving sense, but their styles are similar. Shouting and unsmiling, anti-establishment and anti-media, absolutely convinced of their own correctness, attacking boogeymen, the 1%, and CEOs in Sanders' case, instead of immigrants and minorities. How on earth can you justify comparing attacking the 1% and CEOs uh, as being anywhere close to Trump's attacking of immigrants and minorities. This piece is just so completely ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense. Like, what planet does Dana Milbank live on? It's crazy. Offering impractical promises with vague details, lacking nuance and nostalgic for the past. Sanders supporters say hope he'll fight Trump's fire with fire, refusing to be conciliatory the way Biden and O'Rourke are, or to be goaded by Trump the way Warren was into taking an, a DNA test. Do, do, do. Um, I'm just going to... Oh, here's a piece I'll, I'll read, because I don't want to spend the whole time reading just this. I spent Monday at a cattle call for eight Democratic presidential candidates hosted by labor unions the Sierra Club, Planned Parenthood, and other progressive groups. Sanders was easily the least charismatic, which I do not believe. How can you look at Bernie and, and not see the charisma of that man? Hoisting his trousers by the waist, tugging at his socks, hunching over the lectern, sitting stiffly and awkwardly greeting questioners. But the reception among liberal activists, which had ranged from tepid, 
Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, to enthusiastic Warren, was for Sanders rapturous. Bernie, 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 they chanted, standing when he appeared and when he finished. In between, they applauded a routine full of Trumpian flourishes. So Milbank says he channeled rage at the vulgarity of a grotesque and corrupt system, the absolute hypocrisy of Republicans, corporations that lie, and billionaires who buy elections. Of the wealthy, he said, many of them are bandits. And he said if Republicans don't have the guts to participate in a free and fair election, they should get the hell out of politics. Like Trump, he railed against companies moving jobs to China or Mexico. Like, okay, just because Trump is, is a nutcase and potentially has declining mental facilities doesn't mean that he's like 100% wrong all the time. Yes, it's not great that we're moving all of our jobs to China or Mexico. Yes, it's not great that there's fake news in the news media, kind of like this piece. So his comparisons just don't make any sense. Um, it's less hateful, perhaps, to blame billionaires than immigrants or certain globalists for America's troubles, but the scapegoating is similar. So is Sanders' socialist label, Worn as defiantly as Trump wears the isolationist America first. By the way, this bugs me whenever people in the media do it. Sanders is a democratic socialist, which is not the same thing as a socialist, but they do it because the word socialist is scary, and they don't want people to know that Sanders' policies are actually what they want. When you remove the socialist label, the democratic socialist label, and you just state his policies like Medicare for all, it's what people want. And the media and corporatists are scared of that. A similar crowd could likewise prevent Democrats from presenting a clear alternative to Sanders' tempting, if Trumpian, message that a nefarious elite is to blame for America's problems. Except for the fact that that's true. This, this guy, oh my goodness. Universal health care, higher education, and child care are within reach, Sanders said to Cheers. If only we stand up and tell this 1% that we will no longer tolerate their greed. In real life, it's not so simple, but in our new politics, maybe it is. This columnist's wife, Anna Greenberg, works for John Hickenlooper, a Democratic presidential candidate. Great job with one disclaimer, but you missed out on the part where the wife used to be a Biden polar pollster. As you probably could have could tell, <laughs> that piece makes me really, really upset. I disagree with all of it. And I'm not alone in that. There are many people who have come out against this. And the next piece I'll show you, actually, they pulled Jordan's um, one of Jordan's tweets about this piece, too. So it's kind of cool. Uh, let's go into this mediaite piece so you can see other people's responses to that. You have my response, which is cuckoo freaking bananas and absolutely infuriating. So now let's go to see what other progressive people have to say. So this is in mediaite. Washington Post Milbank ripped for column calling Bernie Trump of the left a complete joke. And the a complete joke part in the title is from Jordan's tweet. So that's cool. 
The Washington Post was criticized today in response to columnist Dana Milbank's op-ed labeling presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders the Donald Trump of the left. He continued, Fundraising and polls show that many Democrats think that the best answer to an angry old white guy with crazy hair, New York accent, and flair for demagoguery is, well, another angry old white guy with crazy hair, New York accent, and flair for demagoguery. First of all, no one should be making fun of Mr. Sanders' hair. It's beautiful, lovely, white hair as white as snow. <laughs> when suggesting that Sanders and Trump share the ability to channel hate at a group of people, Milbank argued, it's less hateful, perhaps, to blame billionaires than immigrants or certain globalists for America's troubles, but the scapegoating is similar. Milbank who notes at the end of the article that his wife works for Sanders' Democratic primary opponent, John Hickenlooper, took to Twitter to blame criticisms of his piece on the vitriol and name-calling of the Bernie bros. And that's uh, Dana Milbank's tweet right here. In my column noting parallels in style, not substance, between Sanders and Trump, how can, how can he say not substance when he's talking about demagoguery and hitting on the 1% and hitting on the, the corporatists? How could he say that he didn't try to bash Sanders on substance? That's ridiculous. So he says, I wrote, the support for Sanders shows that the angry, unbending politics of Trumpism are bigger than Trump. The vitriol and name-calling of the Bernie Bros replies sadly proves the point. And by the way, the Bernie Bros title, which is also infuriating, and which I'm glad that, in quote, Bernie Bros have adopted, is, um, it's, it was created by Correct the Record. I mean, they had this whole idea of bashing Bernie Sanders supporters by calling them Bernie bros, despite the fact of how many women are Bernie Sanders supporters. It's just very infuriating. While the piece received a wholehearted endorsement from Milbank's Washington Post colleague Jennifer Rubin, which, <laughs> yeah, good job, an endorsement from Jennifer Rubin, <laughs> I mean, great. It was generally mocked online. Check out a few of the media's reactions to the lazy column on Sanders and Trump's shared weird hair. So, uh, Cenk Uger said, This article demonstrates every single thing wrong with mainstream media and why progressives can't stand them. Thank you, Milbank, for clinic and establishment cluelessness. And then Jordan's tweet right under that. The Washington Post is a complete joke, and that's the one that made it into this title. Andrew Perez says, uh, if that's going to be your take, you should probably run this disclosure at the top. And he's talking about the Hickenlooper disclosure. Uh, Matthew Glacius says, Bernie Sanders' message can appeal to some of the same voters who, alienated by establishment political culture, rally to Trump's banner. And then uh, an arrow, cool leftist take. Bernie Sanders' political style is the Democrats' version of Donald Trump. Arrow, bad neoliberal take. Glenn Greenwald said, In moronically but predictably equating Trump and Bernie Sanders, the Washington Post's Dana Milbank, whose wife is working for the Hickenlooper campaign, inadvertently reveals the real reason so much of the media and DC establishment hate Bernie. 
Will Menneker says, Dana Milbank is correct. Bernie can win and will win the presidency. <laughs> so Will there usually frames things as a joke. So he's saying like Dana Milbank's correct in this one thing. Trump won, Bernie can win. Tom Gara, Dana Milbank's Bernie is the Trump of the left thing reads like the captions to one of those expanding brain panel memes. <laughs> Asawin Soupsang says, mostly unimpressed by Bernie Trump comparisons because they're so lazy. Both say things about trade and tap into widespread fury. Yeah, and Father Tiso and Oscar Romero were both foreigners affiliated with the Roman, Roman Catholic Church. There were some key differences between them, though. Sam Thielman says, Can you imagine using your staff position at the best newspaper in the country to write a column about how Trump and Bernie are basically the same because they both have weird hair? <laughs> okay, and then we have Nina Turner, our beloved Nina Turner saying president of the pro Sanders organization, our revolution and David Sirota, um, Sanders speechwriter also slammed the op-ed on Twitter. Nina says, seriously, Washington post, there's absolutely no comparison between Senator Bernie Sanders and president Trump. One pushes hope and vision and the other stokes hate and division. It is obvious what you are doing and it is not a good look. Get him, Nina. David Sirota says, Bernie. Billionaires should pay taxes and we should guarantee health care as a human right. Trump. Kids should be ripped away from their parents at the border and thrown in cages. Milbank. These are the same. I mean, that really sums it up there, David Sirota. And then we have the Glenn Greenwald tweets, which I've already pointed out, but there's a second one where he says also Milbank's use of the word perhaps here is nothing short of revolting and the part of the article he's talking about is it's less hateful perhaps to blame billionaires than immigrants or certain globalists for America's troubles so look at that look how that's phrased it's less hateful perhaps you know that emphasis on the perhaps so he's saying maybe it's less hateful to blame billionaires than it is to blame immigrants Ugh, what on earth? This piece is, for one thing, badly written. It's in one of the most popular newspapers in the country, and it's complete propaganda. That's all there is to it. It's, it's, it's really just nuts, as I've said over and over. Another tweet by Glenn, perhaps the most irrational claim in Milbank's attack on Sanders is this paragraph, claiming Sanders runs on Trumpian rage, hatreds, and division. Two things have defined Sanders' political life, reaching out to everyone and refusing to run negative ads on his opponents. Ding, ding, ding. But Milbank said, Sanders supporters hope he'll fight Trump's fire with fire, refusing to be conciliatory the way Biden and O'Rourke are, or to be goaded by Trump the way Warren was into taking a DNA test. Maybe answering belligerence with belligerence will work, Trump era predictions are worthless. Either way, the support for Sanders shows that the angry, unbending politics of Trumpism are bigger than Trump. So the highlighted spaces are what Glenn is paying attention to. It's so infuriating. Um, obviously, we can expect 
that this is not the end of the attacks on Bernie. That would be silly. There are going to be many more attacks on Bernie this campaign season. It's going to get really, really, really dirty, especially towards the end, just like it did last time. This time, we don't know who basically the two frontrunners of the primary will be, but we, you know, it's pretty safe to assume that Bernie Sanders will be one of them. So we can expect more Dana Milbank hot takes. We can expect hot takes in the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, every every big newspaper out there, every corporatist newspaper out there are going to keep attacking Bernie. And it might even be worse than this. As mad as this one made me, it could get worse. So I'm just going to, I'm going to keep an eye out on what people are saying and how ridiculous it is. This one in, in particular though, so far was the most egregious I've seen. Just, just absolutely off his rocker, that Dana Milbank. The DCCC has recently put out this new rule where, well, I'll, I'll show you the new rule. So the DCCC sure as hell isn't going to let another AOC win. And this was written on the 22nd of March. So this is just to catch you up. And right there is AOC. So the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, otherwise known as the DCCC or the DTRIP, if you want to be one of the cool kids, I guess you say DTRIP. So the DTRIP released a new set of rules on Friday that aims to protect incumbent candidates across the country at the cost of also cracking down on any ideological progress or debate about the party's direction. The DCCC's new hiring standards, which, per the National Journal, went out to more than 100 political firms that consult or work on campaigns around the country, say the organization will not contract with or recommend the services of any firm that chooses to work for an incumbent Democrat's opponent. So that means that they will not work with any uh, anyone who challenges an incumbent in a place where Democrats are likely to win. So in other words, if a political firm challenges the status quo at all, like working with Ayanna Presley or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the 2018 midterms, when they both defeated longtime incumbents, they faced a DCCC blacklist. Uh, according to the National Journal, the new protocol intentionally debuted early in the off year before most campaign hiring begins presents a stark financial deterrent to the country's top firms that provide essential services ranging from polling to TV advertising to strategy. It could cripple would-be primary opponents' ability to entice top talent to join their staff. The DCCC independent expenditure arm doles out millions in contracts to consultants and drives more revenue toward them by connecting campaigns with vetted operatives. The DCCC is oftentimes the gatekeeper for consultants to get to candidates, said Ian Russell, a campaign media strategist and former top official at the committee. Unless you have a steady stream of income coming from another source, it would be very difficult to navigate the house world if you are shut out by the DCCC. The DCCC's weak justification for these rules is to protect the Democrats' hard-won majority in the House. But this doesn't do that. Blocking the best political firms from working with progressive primary opponents doesn't make fragile centrists and swing districts any safer from Republicans in the general election. But it certainly hinders those districts from pulling up a stronger candidate if one comes along. 
it could also have the effect of helping protect all incumbents, not just the obstinate centrist ones who pander to the Republicans or the status quo. So this move by the DCCC has been highly controversial and people do worry that it will hinder candidates that are like AOC or like the ones that Justice Democrats and brand new Congress put up. And disclaimer here, I have previously volunteered for brand new Congress and Justice Democrats um, as a writer. I no longer do. So it could hinder their progress and it's just... You know, the, the purpose of it, they say one thing, but really the purpose of it is to hinder these progressive candidates. They don't want another AOC. She's shaking things up. They don't want another Ayanna Presley. They don't want another Ilhan Omar. They don't want another Rashida Tlaib. You know, they are, <laughs> they're comfortable with uh, their incumbents. They want the same old, same old. They want the status quo. So the DCCC is doing its its darn best to try to keep out those candidates. But I really think they're going to shoot themselves in the foot because really what's a primary for? It's to figure out who is the best candidate and the determination of who is the best candidate is made by the voters. So they're taking out choice. They might have a weak incumbent who just hasn't been challenged in forever or who has been challenged by weak weaker candidates who keeps winning. And really, the new progressive candidate could be the one who is better to beat the GOP candidate. They're just, they're not very smart, those DCCC people. You would think they'd be smarter about politics up there. Uh, let's go into what else they're doing. And this was published on Monday, this past Monday. Progressive House Dems are going to war with the DCCC. Less than a week after the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee announced it would blacklist vendors that work with candidates who primary incumbent House Democrats, new members who found success in that very strategy are pushing back, calling the policy extremely divisive and warning it would undermine women and people of color. And that is an excellent, excellent point. It will definitely undermine women and people of color. And by the way, I want to take a, a little, little break to say smash that like button if you haven't already. It really helps us get new viewers and become a member to get great perks, including free access to our upcoming documentary that's to be released on the 23rd of this very month of April. And you'll get free and early access. So go ahead and become a member at statuscoup.com join. Now getting back to this DCCC story. Over the weekend, House Reps Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, and Ro Khanna of California challenged the DCCC's new policy, refusing to hire political vendors that work with candidates seeking to challenge Democratic incumbents. The policy, which has reportedly already manifested itself in political consultants dropping out of a primary challenger's nascent 2020 campaign, works to scare off vendors by threatening their access to the DCCC's independent expenditure arm, which pays millions in contracts and connects vendors to other Democratic Opportunities resources. Ocasio-Cortez, who defeated former Rep Joe Crowley last year, called for small-dollar donations to swing candidates on Saturday, invoking a few candidates such as California Reps Mike Levin and Katie Porter and Illinois Rep Lauren Underwood. 
Ocasio-Cortez even went as far as to tell supporters not to give any money to the DCCC at all. She said, the DCCC's new rule to blacklist plus boycott anyone who does business with primary challengers is extremely divisive and harmful to the party. My recommendation, if you're a small dollar donor, pause your donations to DCCC and give directly to swing candidates instead. Presley also tweeted saying, I believe fiercely in the potential of our party, but we cannot credibly lay claim to prioritizing diversity and inclusion when in institutions like the DCCC implement policies that threaten to silence new voices and historically marginalized communities. Kana told CNN in a statement, the DCCC's policy is the kind of policy protecting the Washington establishment that plays directly into Trump's hands and that chairwoman Illinois Rep. Cherry Bustos is allowing the DCCC to blacklist candidates like himself. Kana defeated former Rep. Mike Honda in 2016. It seems that these appeals, two from some of the most visible Democratic freshmen, mean nothing to the DCCC, which unequivocally shrugged. This transparent policy follows through on that exact promise and will protect all members of the Democratic caucus, regardless of where they fall within our big tent, DCCC spokesperson Cole later said. Chances are this won't be the last time the party's left wing clashes with the DCCC, especially considering that moderates are already strategizing their revenge for the last round. Again, this was in Splinter News by Samantha Grasso. So what AOC and um, Ayanna Presley and Ro Khanna are saying is, hey, we're in here. We are good. We were good candidates. We won. We went on to win the primary. Here we are. We don't take corporate cash. We are uncorruptible. But here we are working hard for our country. And what you're doing, DCCC, is handicapping other candidates who might be like us. And that's absolutely true. And no one's saying that anyone ever thought that the DCCC wasn't corrupt itself because it is like if you're giving money to the DCCC or ever have, you may want to rethink that. And like AOC says, give directly to candidates because the DCCC is absolutely establishment, one of the most establishmenty of establishment things out there. So it will come as no surprise to you that they are accepting cash from lobbyists uh, right after their announcement. So this is the last article on this one. And this is in readsledge.com. And it's by Alex Koch and Andrew Perez. As it works to stifle primary challengers, DCCC takes more money from corporate lobbyists. A number of lobbyists representing major health insurers and oil and gas giants are bundling big checks for the DCCC. Ugh, it's so, so frustrating. Corporate lobbyists are raising an increasing amount of money for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, DCCC, at a time when the House Democrats' campaign arm is taking fire from the left for its effort to freeze out primary challengers. Let's see. The DCCC raised nearly $19 million in the first two months of this year, more money than it had raised by this point last election cycle, and the committee is relying more heavily on corporate lobbyists to collect checks. 
So part of the reason is because people are afraid of Donald Trump winning again. So they're giving to the DCCC because they think that's the best thing to do. It absolutely is not. And then we have the corporate lobbyists who are indeed lobbying to get what they want. Lobbyists whose clients include healthcare, oil, gas, and coal interests raised almost $440,000 for the DCCC in January and February. Federal Election Commission records show many of their clients oppose progressive priorities like Medicare for All, healthcare system, or a Green New Deal to mitigate climate change. I do not take money from corporations, PACs, or lobbyists, Rokana said in an email on Tuesday. The DCCC should not either. A DCCC spokesperson did not respond to questions from Maplight and Sledge, nor did any of the committee's lobbyist bundlers. So you can see that people like Ro Khanna, AOC are coming out against this, but a lot of people just don't even know what's happening. They don't realize that the, what the DCCC even is, or and they definitely don't realize where it's getting its money from or how much it's getting. They don't realize that the DCCC isn't all good and giving to Democratic candidates or giving to good vendors to help the candidates. Uh, they're taking money from terrible, terrible lobbyist bundlers. Also, in February 2016, the DCCC, or excuse me, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, quietly reversed an Obama-era ban on contributions from federal lobbyists and political action committees. Lobbyists raised roughly $100,000 for the DCCC in 2015 through 16, before raising close to $1.9 million for the committee during the 2018 election cycle. This year, led by centrist Democratic Rep. Sherry Bustos of Illinois, the DCCC has already received as much money via donations bundled by corporate lobbyists than in all of 2017. So let's reread the most important line in this. In February 2016, the DNC quietly reversed an Obama-era ban on contributions from federal lobbyists and political action committees. That is extremely important. Here is a graph that tells you more. After only two months, corporate lobbyists were on track to provide the DCCC with more than $2 million in bundled donations in 2019. The DCCC has been under fire from progressives who resent its policy of blacklisting consultants, most of whom don't lobby for major corporations in races where incumbent Democrats are challenged. Very, very disturbing. I'll definitely stay on this. Jordan will stay on this as well. And, you know, it's important to not let the DCCC get away with this unnoticed. We can't let them get away with this bundled cash from lobbyists. Lobbyists that are completely against what Democrats want and, and what even most people in the country want, like Medicare for all. You know, take the name Democrat or Republican out and people want Medicare for all. People do care about the environment. People care about the things that Bernie Sanders proposes, like a living wage, a lot of things. And the DCCC is directly opposing that, bowing to lobbyists. 